Good morning, everyone. This is a reading from Job 3, verses 1 to 10. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said, a man-child is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, or light shine on it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds settle upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the day of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Yes, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. Let those curse it who curse the sea, those who are skilled to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. May it not see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide trouble from my eyes. Job 4, 1 to 9. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered, If one ventures a word with you, would you be offended? But who can keep from speaking? See, you have instructed many. You have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have supported those who were stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Think now, who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plough in iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. This is from Job 7, verses 11 to 21. Then Job answered, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea? or the dragon that you set a guard over me. And when I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I would choose strangling and death rather than this body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are a breath. What are human beings that you make so much of them, that you set your mind on them, Visit them every morning, test them every moment. Will you not look away from me for a while? Let me alone until I swallow my spittle. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. I was talking this week to the minister of a church in Scotland who expressed something of their feelings of intense frustration and powerlessness at not knowing what to say or do to help people in their congregation at this time who are suffering from poor mental health, chronic isolation and other negative psychological effects of lockdown. Whilst for some people, the adaptations of the past few months have demanded 
uh, things of us that are an inconvenience. For others, particularly those who already had physical or mental health problems, these times have been traumatic. And the question of how to respond to those who are suffering is not easy to answer. What does it mean to draw alongside those whose experience of life is both difficult and unfair? Our readings today from the book of Job take us into the world of Job's suffering, which is both physical and psychological and utterly undeserved. Through no fault of his own, his life and health have fallen apart. Job is sitting in solitary desolation when his three friends come to visit. Initially, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar don't recognise their old friend. But when they do, their first response is both helpful and appropriate. They draw alongside him, sit with him and weep with him. The final verse of chapter two, just before the first of our readings for today, tells us that no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Sometimes sitting in silence and weeping with those who suffer is enough. And I suspect it's always a good place to start. But then if the person starts to speak, the next task is to listen and listen well, which is where the friends of Job starts to get it wrong. Job starts to speak at the beginning of chapter three and we hear his lament at his misfortune. He begins by cursing the day of his birth, by crying out that he wishes he was dead, that it would have been better if he had never been born. We can hear echoes of Job's lament in the language often used by those who suffer from suicidal or self-destructive thoughts. I don't suppose either Patty Page or indeed Freddie Mercury knew that they were quoting Job in their two most famous songs, but nevertheless their lyrics capture so much of the anguish felt by those whose lives have left them full of regret and pain. In 1960, the post-war singing sensation Patti Page sang, and if you're a certain age, you can sing along. I wish I'd never been born, don't like this life I'm living. My heart is shattered and torn. I wish I'd never been born. And then 15 years later in 1975, Freddie Mercury and Queen sang similar sentiments, but in a very different musical style. Carry on as if nothing really matters. Too late, my time has come, sends shivers down my spine, bodies aching all the time, I don't want to die. I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. Or as Job put it, let the day perish in which I was born. In the lament against his life which follows, there are conscious echoes of the creation story from the beginning of Genesis. So where God said, let there be light, Job says, let there be darkness. Where God brings life into being, Job wishes he had been stillborn. 
For him, in the depths of his pain, he concludes that this game called life is simply no longer worth playing. He didn't ask for it, and he wishes he could hand it back. Suicide rates remain worryingly high in the UK, with men in midlife most likely to kill themselves. The impact of lockdown on the suicide rate has yet to be fully seen, but the Zero Suicide Alliance have trained an additional half a million people in suicide prevention in anticipation of a growing mental health crisis. From a different perspective, next month I'm going to be attending the launch of a new book which addresses the controversial topic of assisted dying for those with terminal illness and the question of how to respond to those who have concluded that life is not a gift that they want to keep is one of the key pastoral questions of our time. I'm not going to dwell on this aspect of things now, but just to note I've written on this elsewhere if you want to know my thoughts. However, one thing we can be fairly certain about is that the right way to respond to a person who is wishing that they were dead is to not do what Eliphaz does next. He's one of Job's friends. And after this positive start of drawing near to Job and weeping with him, things start to go in a decidedly less helpful direction. Job's friends, sometimes called Job's comforters, represent the theology of retributive justice. Now, I said last week in our first sermon on this book that the book of Job is a piece of theological narrative exploring through story form what it means to suffer before God. And it does this by pitting different approaches against each other. And in the speeches from Job's friends, we find the microscope turned forensically on the approach which says, that Job must have done something to deserve this much suffering. My grandfather was brought up as a Christian scientist, and he was taught that illness is a manifestation of a person's inner sin. In other words, if you're ill, you did something to deserve it, and to find healing you must confess and stop that sin. I have often thought it entirely understandable that he came out of this as a lifelong atheist. And I'm sure any of us would reject any suggestion that suffering or illness comes as a result of a person's personal sin. However, I don't think we can entirely dismiss Eliphaz because his speech reflects a human tendency that we are all prey to, that of trying to fix things when they're broken. His beguiling logic captures the cause and effect that we all instinctively seek in order to offset problems and resolve situations. He says, think now, who that was innocent ever perished? As I have seen those who plough iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. He might have said, you reap what you sow. He sets himself up 
as the one whose job is to analyze and fix and save the situation, to work out what's really going on, and then try and voice that, to kind of try and make things better. Eliphaz is the person who, full of well-meaning concern, tells someone in pain and suffering that these things happen for a reason, you know. He's the person who tells someone in grief and loss that God takes first those whom he loves the most. And whilst I wouldn't want to deny that for some people there can be a genuine comfort in such sayings, I think the book of Job is challenging their ability to offer an ultimately meaningful approach to suffering. Job is a story that is intentionally subversive of this kind of way of thinking. And as the friends' speeches develop, their attempts to seek meaning in and reason for Job's suffering repeatedly founder on the rocks of Job's righteousness and his unwillingness to play the game of reason-seeking or blame-sharing. And I find myself wondering, how do we respond? How do I respond to those whose lives I do not share, but whose suffering I get to witness? In the light of the Black Lives Matter campaign, I have to ask, how do I, as a white person, respond to those whose lives are deeply affected by their experience of both personal and systemic racism. If you, like me, share this concern, we need to hear the warning of the story of Eliphaz. Because the temptation is to keep talking when we should really be keeping quiet and listening. The temptation is to demand that the person who is suffering does the hard work of explaining their pain to those of us watching on. The temptation is to try and fix the situation, not by doing our own hard work on our unacknowledged biases and prejudices, but by explaining to our black and minority ethnic friends that the situation isn't really the same as they say it is from their perspective. Perhaps it is time to listen to the one suffering again. Our readings pick up the story in chapter 7, where Job makes a significant move. He stops speaking to himself, and starts speaking to God. This is one of the turning points of the book. In chapter three, where we left him, he was cursing the day of his birth. But by chapter seven, he is holding his complaint before God. His words begin as a shriek of suffering directed at God. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are a breath. But then we get an echo of one of the Psalms of David, as Job drags theology kicking and screaming into his complaint. What are human beings that you make so much of them, that you set your mind on them, visit them every morning, test them every moment? 
Job cannot fathom why God would even be bothered to test him in this way, if this is indeed what's going on. After all, in Psalm 8, those exact same words follow one of the great scriptural affirmations of the awesome majesty of God. And Job's question is profound. If God is so great, why would God bother to test humans to destruction at all? And so Job rejects. Eliphaz's suggestion that there is some divinely ordained meaning in his suffering. He similarly goes on to deny the suggestion that his suffering is a punishment for sin. Addressing Eliphaz's version of God the Punisher, Job says, if I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not just pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquity? The book of Job invites its readers to consider and then reject a view of God who causes suffering for some inscrutable reason that we cannot yet fathom. And to reject a view of God who causes suffering as a punishment for sin. These views of God do not stand in the light of Job's righteousness. And they do not stand in the light of the cross either, as God's son faces undeserved suffering and death. An understanding of Job helps us understand the cross of Christ, where Jesus suffers not because God ordains it for some unfathomable reason, nor because God is seeking to punish Jesus for sin. Rather, Jesus suffers on the cross because we suffer. This is what it means to be human. And Jesus is God entering into the depths of humanity and the depths of human suffering. And so we leave Job for this week, facing his suffering alone. He concludes his speech. For now, I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Eliphaz's attempt to fix Job has failed. Job's suffering cannot be explained and it cannot be explained away, but neither can it be minimised. And Job concludes by handing the responsibility for his continued existence back to God, not asking God to undo his misery or to fix it or even to explain it. He simply acknowledges God's presence in the midst of his pain as he moves to a place of utter honesty with God from the depths of his suffering. And here again, we see an echo of the cross. As God is present with us in the midst of our pain, inviting us to a place of honesty before God from the depths of our humanity. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Simon. Let's just take a moment to reflect on those words before we move into the discussion part of our service this morning.
Well, I'm pleased to say that I'm joined on the panel this morning by some of the deacons and regular members of our church congregation. I was struck by Simon's mention of the issue of suicide earlier on in the sermon. It was an article, it was an issue that I, that I looked at a, a couple of weeks ago for an article that I was researching about the impact of uh, lockdown. And I looked at suicide rates in the United States and in the United Kingdom at the end of the Second World War compared to now. And I was very struck that the suicide rates were almost exactly the same. In fact, if anything, there'd been a slight increase in suicide uh, in both countries, despite all the great progress I think that we've made in um, the science of psychology, the number of uh, mental health practitioners and the, the greater awareness that there are of mental health issues in, in, in society now. I wonder whether that's really made a huge difference to our overall sense of contentment with our lives. Um, Helen, I wonder if I might start with you. I know you've got a lot of experience in counselling and talking to people. What do you think is the best way to come alongside somebody when they're expressing dismay or anxiety or perhaps even moving towards suicidal thoughts? Morning, Duncan. Um, isn't it a huge topic as well? And I know whatever I say later on, I'll think of something else that I forgot. But I think what Simon said about what goes through in Job, how the first thing to do is just to be with that person, to acknowledge that they're suffering in some way without trying to explain it or trying to, you know, do anything. I think that's really important. And then listening is just so important. I think especially at the moment as well, listening to voices that maybe don't always get heard or instead of us trying to fix everything, that is my natural, like my personality, my natural thing when someone's upset is to be like, okay, I understand exactly how you feel, even if I don't, but I always, you know, I immediately try and like relate it to something that I understand, which I don't know if actually that's always very useful. That is my natural instinct. And then I, I am that person that just wants to fix everything and go, okay, how can I make this situation better? And sometimes that's useful, but to be honest, most of the time you, you can't always fix it. That's not the point. Quite often people are sharing things because they just, want to be heard and I think that's the most important thing obviously if you can try and help in some way that's like another step later on um, and that's something I have to fight in like my my nature because I just want to make it better for them whatever that thing is and especially during lockdown because um, we're shielding so we can't leave the house I can't you know all the things like in normal life they would go okay I'll go around to that person's house I will go and buy them something that they need that you know whatever it is um you can't do that and so it's quite it's fascinating during lockdown that actually you have to rethink how you relate to lots of people as well yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you helen i see dawn our communities minister is here nice to see you dawn we haven't seen you for a little while how's things how are the twins yeah they're good they're good they're being looked after by their grandmother and their dad at the moment Oh, I see. So great. So what's your feeling on this issue about how to help people when they're uh, expressing anxiety or concern? What, what, what have you learned about the, the, the way to come alongside people in, in, in counselling or whatever? Um, and I really relate to what Simon was saying about um, like the kind of the and what Helen was saying about that, like that, that desire to try and fix things. But I think I guess what I've learned over the years is that some things can't be fixed anyway 
and so there's no point even trying on one level um and also i mean i myself have experienced anxiety and i don't necessarily want people to tell me what i'm doing wrong or what i could be doing or how if i did this it would make everything better i just want someone to see that i have anxiety i want someone to see me and the pain that i'm in and to care and i think that's generally kind of how i try now to respond to others if if, if i see someone that is in in distress then it's it's to sit with them as like to to listen to to not tell them that there is that they're wrong what they're feeling is wrong or tell them that there's a better way of doing things it's just to care just to love them and that does look different now in lockdown helen's right like does that looks like text messages and whatsapp voice messages and um posting on sending um direct messages on Instagram to people, um, checking in with people that I know have anxiety in the best of times and, and being mindful and thoughtful of those that we know are gonna struggle or we know that are by themselves and reaching out. I think that's the thing, like it's that kind of, that contact that just, just to be seen, to be known, to be heard, is such a valuable thing for people who feel unseen, who feel silenced, who feel isolated and alone. I mean, I think this is probably, you see some of the right, like what the writing has been about is because those like people of color, black people specifically have not been heard. They have not been seen and they have not been cared for. And this is the response and it's a justified response. Thank you, Dawn. And I think that, yeah, we, that's what you've got to do, is reach out and listen. Thank you. Dawn. Solomon, I wonder if I could get your response to the other theme of the sermon and what uh, Dawn has just said. What have your feelings been as you've been watching these Black Lives Matters protests around the world in the last few days? Solomon, can I ask you to unmute your microphone, please? Yes, I just, oh, I just want to, want to relate to the point that Sam raised about uh, euthanasia, that is assisted dying. And then I, I'm asking myself, at what point uh, could we devalue life, as life is so precious from the God that gave life, and he has made us to live life. And for us to reach a point that we will devalue life as in that in Job's case. And not for the perspective of euthanasia also, but for the perspective of how we treat each other. How do we uh, uh, devalue the life of others? You know, so that's quite astonishing because if I am put to a position what I would devalue the life of another person you know by doing things to them that to cause them harm or, or i would devalue my life to reach your point where my life would be suicidal uh, i think it's, it's it's very remarkable i think it's, it's it's a point that we should should think about life and and, and the gift of, of life 
and what life meant to be. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I think that discussion about euthanasia is a huge issue, actually, which we just touched on tangentially in um, Simon's sermon. I mean, I think there could be a lot more uh, discussion about that. But just on the particular point about the Black Lives Matter protest, do you think there, there is an element to what Dawn said, that people are angry because they, ha they feel their voices haven't been heard? Yes, there's, there's, there's many things to that. I think the underlying thing is about how we, we, we treat each other, whether on the basis of race or on the basis of, uh, of, of political participation, about income. How do we relate to each other and the life of others in, in terms of the quality of life, how we respect each other, and, and the fact that we live in a small space and we are actually inter interconnected. And for black people, I think it's, it's a sentiment felt for a long time ago that uh, 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 many things have not been shared and, and, and in terms of income, in terms of justice, in terms of housing. I think, as Simon said, it is time for us to to start to listen, and not only listen, but to react to those sentiments. And it can happen in our individual lives. I think those protests are genuine, and taking the violent part aside, those protests are, are, are genuine for to raise the awareness of, of, of common humanity, how we, we, we treat each other, not only, I think not only for Blacks, uh, uh, wealth, respect, justice, and housing, uh, all of this inequality that we should, we should start to address. And, and the only way we could, we could do that is to take pause and stop talking and start to listen. Thank you, Solomon. That's really helpful. Yeah. What's your perspective on some of these things that we've been discussing? Is it a time for more listening? I think there's always a time for more listening. Um, I totally empathise um, with Helen's what Helen has said um, about the um, well, the, the kind of desire to fix things and the desire to also say, well, I've been there. Um, you know, I totally get you. You know, almost my desire to empathise causes me to do that, um, which isn't always very helpful. Um, I think that what I would say is there's no. There's no one size fits all for, for, for situations. And I think that often it depends how well you know the person and it depends, you know, you might know that a person responds best um, if they're really struggling to you sending them a joke, but that would be utterly inappropriate for someone else. So um, I think we, we just need to know that there isn't always absolutely the, the, the same thing for everybody. Um, the other thing I would say is I think that we also have to have an understanding of how we're bringing ourselves to the situation. So, for example, my need to empathise and my need to is often I'm bringing my own hurt to the situation. So um, I think that uh, often and I was thinking about um, Eliphaz because <laughs> obviously I had to do the reading and um, it, it's, he, he comes across not sounding great, obviously. 
And, but I wonder, I kind of wonder what's gone on for him because the thing is, I know that certainly in some things in, in my past, that the reason people have tried to fix things and the reason I kind of feel that rather than trying to fix things, Eliphaz was trying to explain things. And I think he probably needed the explanation for himself because it's like his whole idea of God needed to have this kind of really clear cut thing. And then when it wasn't working for one of his friends, who clearly, clearly was a good guy, and why was he getting all of this pain? Eliphaz is actually bringing his own uh, disquiet at how, um, how, yeah, how things aren't fair and, and where is God in this? And I think we need to recognize when we're coming to other people that we can do that as well, that we, you know, that actually we might think we're just trying to get alongside them and, and help them, but actually perhaps what we're doing is we're bringing our own pain and, and we're trying to kind of, so I think that we need to have a recognition of that. And sometimes that means we need to give people space as well. Not everybody wants somebody coming alongside them the whole time. They might actually just need to have a bit of a rest. Um, and my final point is actually, I think um, the only thing I can really talk about is issues to do with anxiety, mental health, that kind of thing from a, from a personal level. Um, and also um, seeing people suffer is really hard for us. And um, I think that within Christian circles, there's a high degree of shame placed on how you're feeling because as a Christian you're supposed to be happy you're supposed to be able to sort everything and you're supposed to be able to just put up with everything and I think that that in itself can be really damaging and um, with issues to do with even feeling that you need to suicidal thoughts you know suicidal thoughts is a complex area and actually we need to be careful not to shame people who are feeling like they 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 haven't got anything to live for because actually um, yeah it, that that isn't our judgment to make and i think that just yeah listening getting alongside recognizing the person as an individual is really really important mm, thank you liz and actually uh dermot is also chiming in with something along those lines in the comments he's saying that it's important to recognize our own limits of the ability to help and if somebody is veering towards suicidal ideation they need to be signposted towards professional mental health services I think one of the hardest things, of course, is that when people are depressed, uh, they isolate and then it's very difficult to be able to even have the conversations with them about what kind of help that they need. And I think that's obviously something which has been, uh, you know, made even more difficult in the context of the, um, the, the lockdown, because many of us are forced to isolate. And that means that uh, it's been a catalyst, perhaps, for for negative thoughts or, or, or even depression uh, for many people, which is you know, clearly creating a great deal of anxiety. And I just wonder how we're gonna be able to resolve those problems when we come out of lockdown. Philip, just before we wind up the discussion, I wanted to come to you with your views on what we've been hearing from the book of Job for the last couple of weeks. Simon introduced uh, these sermonettes by saying that uh, he quoted Virginia Woolf, didn't he, and said, Virginia Woolf said, I've been reading the book of Job and God comes out of this quite badly. <laughs> Do you think that's the impression you're getting that a, a rather capricious God putting people to the test? Oh, I think a lot of people will say that and feel that because it is the most perplexing book. I wonder if it's the most possibly perplexing book in the whole Bible. Um, <clears throat> Simon used the word inscrutable and so much of it is. Um, I think people today, or Christians often give 
the view of suffering that um, God through Christ suffered first and has borne all our sins, aches, pains, everything else. And I think this side is often given as an explanation that whatever goes wrong in the world, there's a disaster, something happens. Ah, God is with you, God is there. Experience God, explore God. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't know how fully convinced outsiders are about this, if it's an entirely satisfactory um, answer. It is an entirely satisfactory answer to Christians, but I'm not sure it is to those outside the church. And I think that is the great battle that we have to say, um, I mean, there's so, so much suffering. Um, uh, I mean, Rachel um, in the Old Testament, who couldn't be comforted. And we have the strange testing of, the, of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice. I mean, how many of us, if taught, uh, if told by God to bring a child to be slaughtered, would actually do that? Would we pass the Abrahamic test? We need to search our lives and know whether we would do that. And I think all we can say at the end of the day are those that we say at funerals so often, um, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you, Philip. And thank you to all our panel this morning for engaging with some of the deep questions that were thrown up by the book of Job and by Simon's sermon today. Really good to hear all your participation and perspectives. Let's continue our service now. Philip, can I ask you please to lead us in our prayers of intercession? These prayers will include one or two verses from one or two hymns, which I think might be helpful for the day. Uh, but perhaps we ought to think of the first verse we've been talking about, suicide and despair of Job 3.2. Let the day perish in which I was born. So we really are starting from the pit of despair. Dear Lord, for those who see only a diseased, bruised or brutal world, when each day brings new heartache and despair, when dark days have become the norm, with no morning stars of hope on the horizon, we remember to the bereaved, the marginalised, the dispossessed, the outcast, and for those whose entrenched poverty is their only existence. We think too on this day for those who have been traumatised and bearing the scars of the Grenville Tower, Tower tragedy, which was three years ago today. Lord, we think of those who are imprisoned behind both visible and invisible walls. We remember all who watch and weep and all who thirst. Let us remember those who are sick in body or mind, for the hospitalised, for the whole medical community, carers, and all those frontline workers in these challenging times of coronavirus. In that line of a hymn, Lord, thy touch hath still its ancient power. For those experiencing the burning intolerance of hate through the colour of their skin, 
sexual orientation or multiple other injustices which threaten to crush or to overwhelm. Lord, we remember them and may we also learn to become a voice for the oppressed too. But we know that they are not alone in the suffering because we know that the sufferings of Christ transfigure all suffering and the death of Christ transfigures all death. A verse of a, hum, a hymn sums up these emotions. In every insult, rift and war, where colour, scorn or wealth divide, he suffers still, yet loves the more, and lives where even hope has died. Lord, bring to your world of strife your sovereign word of peace. But as we started from the pit of despair, let us find some gospel reassurance. Let us consider the words of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Equip us for the paths ahead, for there will be new lamps to be lit, new tasks to begin. And a challenging verse from him for, the, for a world, a world suffering and broken. Lord Christ, you meet us in this hour. Break through our sorrow, fear and doubt. Reveal your words, bestow your power, and send us out. Amen. <laughs>